Printed Writer's Tricks of the Trade. I'm Morgan St. James, and tonight's topic is really interesting, using history in a fascinating way. You don't have to be writing in a historic novel or a nonfiction book to include fascinating bits of history. Often, giving the background that leads up to events in fiction or memoirs draws the reader into the scenario, but using dry statements of facts or an information dump can really work in the opposite way and result in pages that the reader just skips past in order to get to the good stuff. So, tonight we're going to talk about some of the techniques writers can use to make the historic details fascinating and integrate them into the story itself. If you would like to ask a question, you can call in on 646-478-0982. And tonight we are delighted to welcome our guest author, Esther Benjamin Schifrin. Her true story is unique, and Esther has used her talents to deal with 100 years of history as the story unfolds. Author, artist, musician, and dynamic international speaker, she was featured in the British BBC program, We'll Meet Again, in 2005, and was a guest lecturer for several days at the Imperial War Museum. Esther's book, Hiding in a Cave of Trunks, takes you on a journey through all facets of Shanghai's colorful multi-ethnic population as she relates the saga of her family's century-long existence in China. Their privileged lifestyle was abruptly terminated in 1943 when they were interned in a Japanese POW camp. They relocated to Hong Kong in 1948, where the Korean War embargo eventually caused their financial collapse. Her book has been endorsed as a must-read by authorities on Shanghai's Jewish history, Chinese professors, professors, and an authority on Sephardic and Eastern Jewry. Esther, we have so many questions for you, I'm afraid the time will zip by very quickly. So before we get going, let's tell listeners where they can find out more about you and buy your book. Well, my book is available. Uh-oh, Esther, you're not coming through. I think we're going to have to kind of wing it here for a minute and ask you to call back in on your cell phone because we're not hearing you at all. And I can give the information about where your book is available while you're calling back in. Uh, Esther's book is available on Amazon.com in both printed and Kindle formats. And the best place to learn more about Esther is on her Amazon Author Central page. Or if you just Google her name, there's lots of information. She also has a website that's in progress now and a blog. And you can find that at www.estershifren.com. And she will send newsletters to everyone on her mailing list, on her email list. And now we've got Esther back again. Let me make her call live. Are you with us, Esther? Yes, I am. Okay, good. That may sound a little better. Well, I've just given our listeners where they can find you and where they can buy your books. And um, I guess I'd like to lead off our questions for you. Uh, 
I mentioned earlier that your family led a privileged lifestyle, and then it was suddenly wrenched away, and you all wound up in a Japanese POW camp. That must have been devastating. How old were you at the time, and how did that affect you? I mean, how did you deal with it? Well, it was truly devastating. I was five years old at the time and had an eight-year-old brother and a two-year-old sister. The adults were extremely stressed. They were tearful and whispering to each other. They tried hard to keep us from knowing exactly what was happening. But, of course, you know how kids pick things up. The prisoner of war intake had been staggered. So we were amongst the last to go into camp, and we went in with all the Japanese officials who were also left out until the last moment because they had to take care of business. My parents were busy packing whatever we were allowed to take with us, and we no longer had our car that had been impounded by the Japanese a year earlier. Food was already being rationed, and though there were items to purchase on the black market, um, without income, we couldn't afford anything. My mom and all who were not yet interned had to bake bread with a monthly wheat allowance. And uh, the British Residence uh, Society gave us a monthly allowance so that we could just buy the barest necessities. Uh, Esther, that has to be a, a dramatic uh, require a major adjustment for someone of any age, and particularly for a child your age. And uh, obviously it was a very unique experience. And before I continue, I just want to mention this is very interesting to me because I'm a World War II history buff, and particularly the war in the Pacific. So this is uh, really something right up my alley. Uh, oh, great. Now, <laughs> what about the way you interacted with the Chinese and the other ethnic groups? Did you ever imagine that it wasn't like uh, that in everyone's life? Yes, I always thought everyone in the world led the same privileged life as we did. And we were waited on hand and foot by doting Chinese armor, which is your housekeeper, um, like a nanny, and Japanese and Indian housekeepers. And we took it all for granted. We took it in our stride. My paternal grandparents had 12 house staff, two each of what they called house boys who um, like were the valets and things like that. And then we had nannies, cooks, cleaning staff, gardeners, and gatekeepers to run a 24-room mansion on large grounds with a tennis court and swimming pool, lavish entertainment the whole time. They also had a chauffeur to drive their swanky car, and cars were not so prolific in the first quarter of the 20th century. So we were really privileged. And we played with kids of different ethnicities who lived on our block. But the British school restricted entry for most races who they regarded as inferior. They were very snobby. Uh, definitely not the way the average American or British kid grows up. Uh, how do you think that shaped the way you view multicultures as an adult? Well, my father had Chinese business associates and employees in his business. And my parents played sports with people from every part of the world. My mother was a five times a sports champion, a diving champion. She was wonderful. And they entertained many of them at our home, and we never thought twice about it. Uh, because we were exposed to and mixed 
so easily with the multi-ethnic groups in Shanghai, I have been able to adapt to a multicultural life in the several countries where I've lived after leaving China. It was enriching, but never prepared me for the pain of watching the suffering caused by apartheid in South Africa and racial discrimination during those years that I spent in South Africa. My goodness, Esther, you've certainly had a unique experience from childhood on, and I'm sure it's fascinating mm-hmm. to our listeners. Um, since our topic is using history in a fascinating way, when you were writing the saga of the hundred years of your family's Shanghai time in Shanghai and beyond uh, the history, what resources did you use to verify various aspects of that time? Um, did you use the actual history of Shanghai as standalone reference points, or did you actually weave it into your family's experience to make it a more personal uh, reading? Um, actually, actually, I did both. Whichever worked to make the story work most effectively. I was extremely careful to do due diligence and to stick to the truth and did masses of research, both online and reading tons of books and everything else I could find that was pertinent. It took absolute years. I also quizzed my many ex-Shanghai family and friends and interviewed my parents extensively three times over 17 years. I traveled from South Africa to Israel with tapes and everything that, I re- that was required to get it all before it became too late. And that gave me 100 pages of wonderful transcribed material to work with. I was fortunate to have Chinese friends, both here and in Shanghai, who were always available to help verify or furnish information. And um, I would run my story by them and ask them to read bits and pieces of it and to tell me if anything didn't bring true for them. Well, you were obviously very, very dedicated to getting out a, a quality product with the amount of research you did, the interviews you did, and the time frame, the, the time it took you to complete the project. Now, how was writing? How has writing your story changed and influenced your life and the lives of your family? Well, it's been remarkable the way it strengthened and spurred me on to widen my speaking range and generally enriched my life. I get around a lot. I, I, I believe that you have to show up wherever you can, and that's how you get ahead. Um, I get around a lot and have broadened my circle of friends by joining different writing groups. And, of course, family and friends somehow never believe you're really going to finish that book. What a surprise. It's really (laughs) done. (laughs) It doesn't. (laughs) And it doesn't matter how many times you've told your story, having it in writing, writing changes the whole deal. All of a sudden, you're an authority. (laughs) Boy, I know what you mean. And by the way, Esther and I met um, because we're both members of the Greater Los Angeles Writers Society, and I've always been fascinated with Esther's uh, story, and I'm so glad to have you on our show today. I myself have written some creative nonfiction, actually a memoir, well, one of them, a memoir of a particular experience in England. And although my memory served me pretty well for location descriptions and some history, I, too, always double-checked on the Internet to make sure I wasn't mistaken about anything. 
Right, because someone will point it out straight away. Oh, you bet. Yeah. <laughs> they 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 certainly will and I've uh I write organized crime books, uh, mob books if you will. And I've also uh wove historical information into experiences of the characters. But in some places it called for a statement of the actual history. Well, mobs are a fascinating topic for me and for a lot of people. But I found I had to tighten my writing so I didn't go off on boring tangents. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious. um, What life lessons do you think you learned from all of the things that happened? You know, I mean, how many of us can say we've been in turn going from privilege to losing everything? Why don't you give us a little bit of a summary and then perhaps a bit about how you chose to write about that? Um, thanks to my mother's amazingly undaunted spirit, I discovered that it's possible to recover from many of life's horrors, and there are many. As long as you have health and a positive outlook, I've managed to achieve many goals in my life and have emigrated alone to several countries. I've had five passports in my life. And each time... I've Growing more independent and discovering wonderful hidden strengths that I never realized I had. And I'm not frightened by new challenges. Um, I have always believed that I could achieve whatever I could conceive. And I've changed careers whenever necessary and regarded it all as growth that enriched me. I just keep learning new things and love it. And, of course, meeting people everywhere in the world and spending longer than vacation time everywhere was just fabulous for me. And each time it got easier to make an immigration, I have to tell you. Well, Esther, you were five years old at the time. Your parents were probably quite young as well when this was going on. Now, how did they cope with with the internment and... Did that, I, I understand from previous readings that life is not easy uh, under those conditions. You don't usually get the, the, you know, the proper nutrition and so forth. Did Were there any health issues that developed during this time? Yes, sure. My parents were very young, and I often reflect on that now more than ever. And actually, they were fantastic and kept us as positive and cheerful as they could, despite losing everything material and suffering serious deprivation and loss of optimal health. We all had health issues, both during internment and some requiring hospitalization and surgery with minimal anesthetic and medication, and and some ongoing lifelong problems. Um, Some were very serious. My sister suffered from many bouts of pneumonia from weakened lungs that started during camp years. And there's a long story attached to that. The Japanese took her away from us for a lengthy period to an unknown hospitalization. We had no idea where she was. It was hell for my parents. I covered that and the other stories in my book, so it's very hard for me to tell you anything more than that now in detail. So, okay. yes, it was very difficult, very, very difficult. So you did weave the history of the POW camp into your memoir, and if uh, if you didn't, why didn't you? If you did, how did you handle that? Because children look at the world and events through different eyes than adults. 
Was it painful for you to relive those times in your life? Um, my story covers the internment of all allies in Shanghai in depth, and there was no way to write it but in an honest way, leaving nothing out. I owed it to all the internees. Nothing like it had ever been written, and if even if it had, the story was always embellished in a way that enhanced its film worthiness and box office appeal. As you know, there was a major, um, major success. Uh, Spielberg made a movie. And the internees were upset by that because it didn't reflect the true story. And at times it was extremely painful to face what really happened to us. Our family never recovered financially. We were robbed by an enemy that to this day has never apologized, never admitted culpability or offered reparations. And my childhood years were stolen and made miserable, as were the lives of so many. Our own relatives scattered to the four corners of earth and were never again to be seen by us. And still, I consider us to be exceedingly more fortunate than the European Holocaust victims. And nothing could equal that horror, obviously. Oh, my God, yes. I, I don't know how any of those people endured that. I actually have known some people that were in the camps. And, yes, lifelong effects from it, both health and mental. Um, right. Esther, actually a book like yours covers so much that is actually a personal account of historical facts, which in itself sets your story aside from a run-of-the-mill memoir about, let's say, a cool trip to a beach town or working as an undercover agent. Uh, do you think the telling of stories like yours is another way of teaching history by personal account? I know when I was in school, I always had very boring history teachers, and I really was not interested because it seemed like this just droned on and on and only wanted us to remember dates. Mm -hmm. It was only when I started traveling internationally that I became interested in history. So I'm mm. sure your readers learn many historical facts that they weren't aware of just simply by reading about your life. Yes, you're so right. Um, my book is in university libraries as well as some other libraries where I've been a guest speaker and, and it's categorized under historical nonfiction. It's a history uh, category. Um, I've been an international speaker for many years on the subject of the internment of Allied civilians during the Japanese occupation of Shanghai. And wherever I've spoken, I've been astonished at the lack of overall knowledge about the history of Jews and other ethnic groups living in Shanghai since the middle of the 19th century and of the POW camps in China during World War II. My own ancestors settled in China in the early 1840s and I was the fifth generation in China. So I felt it was very important to get this into the history um, shelves. Now, Esther, uh, people often think that to learn about historical milestones or cultures, they have to read a dry textbook or watch a movie where artistic license can totally alter their true facts. You experienced the cultural shock of moving from an Asian culture to Israel. What was that like? And did you include any historical details there? Uh, for example, Israel was still a very young country at that time. Do your accounts give the reader a sense of what it was like then as compared to today's Israel? Um, 
you know, Denny, beyond the last chapter in which I describe our final departure from Hong Kong, I never wrote anything about living in Israel because I think that's another story that should stand alone. Um, it was truly a cultural shock for us, not least of which was never seeing another Chinese face again for many years. Huh. <laughs> and that was actually painful. So about three years after or four years after we arrived in Israel, I suddenly saw a Chinese nanny wheeling a child. She had been brought to Israel with and I ran over and hugged her and she hugged me. I spoke a few words of Chinese to her. She was delighted and so was I. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was lovely. And I missed friends and family. And every day was a struggle to survive in Israel when we arrived. We lived in a tent and then a hut before moving to the tiniest of one and a half uh, rooms apartment. And five of us lived in there. We used to make our beds every night, bringing them in from the balcony. And then some of oh. our parents' siblings, sorry, um, some of my parents' siblings were in Israel too with their families. So that made it easier to bear the enormous lifestyle change we underwent. There's a lot of backstory, as you can imagine. And um, I would perhaps tie that in with my 36-year life in South Africa during the punishing apartheid years, where I started married life in a small gold mining town, removed in every possible way from any semblance of my past life and experience. Nothing prepared me for that. Well, Esther, I'm sure your book is absolutely fascinating to everybody who reads it, but you are fascinating to listen to. I mean, you you have just experienced so much in all the years I've known you. Um, I've never really known your true story, and I'm just, as, as Denny is, we're both fascinated with it, I'm sure. Uh, I do have another no. question, though. Mm -hmm. uh, at one point in your book, you have emigrated and left the experience of the Japanese POW camp behind. Yes. But what feelings can you not forget, and how do you view consequences of that? In writing about things like this, can you filter out the anger if it exists and deal strictly with facts? Or do you feel that even though these are historical details, most likely felt by many of those who were interned, it is very important to include emotions and in doing so, draw the reader into what it was really like, not, you know, the old dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. Yes. Uh, you know, although at times I still feel some residual resentment, mostly due to the denial of events by the Japanese, and we had court cases against them as well, which brought the whole thing to the forefront again. But I feel I was able to write a really human story that would validate and bring closure, not only for myself, but also for the many other internees. And it also cleared the places in my head that were dedicated to keeping the memory alive. You know how that works. And this could allow me to continue to write the rest of my life journey that led to my living in the USA. Hooray! I'm finally here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Esther, mm -hmm. Esther, I, I mentioned a, a few minutes ago that I'm a... Uh, uh, Hello. Have we lost you, Denny? Are you there? No. Oh dear. He was going to say he's a World War II uh, veteran who was in the Pacific. I think that's what he was going to say. Can well, you hear me now? Was... Oh, there you are. 
Yeah. That's almost uh, like that cell phone thing. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? <laughs> well, what, what I was what I was saying, girls, is uh, ladies, is that earlier I'd mentioned that I was a World War II history buff, particularly the Pacific, and I'd huh. like to take advantage of Esther's presence on the show tonight to ask a couple of uh, a couple of things that uh, I'm very curious about. Uh, sure. Now. Uh, Obviously, that anyone who's read about those types of things, such as the Bataan Death March, and I, I realize your family wasn't in a military, it wasn't a military situation, but um, the the Japanese had a terrible reputation, at least as far as uh, regarding how they treated military prisoners. Uh, do you have any recollection, or perhaps? Uh, you know, if you don't personally, maybe when you interviewed your your parents and your friends and so forth, uh, were were the Japanese that you had to deal with were they cruel? Did, did, did or? you know? Uh, you know, in our camp, we were a bit more fortunate than the camps where they had single women and men, because there uh. they were much far more cruel. But in our camp, uh, we had the officials who were like a bit of an upper crust. Uh, Japanese, and so they loved, they missed their own families and they loved children. But if anyone, we had roll calls in the morning and at night, and we were short of rations and short of food, and everything was very difficult. But by and large, unless someone tried to escape, um, they, they didn't do anything serious to us. They did punish, uh, do all kinds of torture things to people who tried to escape. And they um, they were sent out to a place called Bridge House, which was horrendous. Uh, people who got back from Bridge House came back half a person. I mean, they suffered so much if they ever even survived from it. And oh. so, um, yes, the cruelty, we knew a lot about it. And, of course, later I found out much, much more than I ever knew as a child. Oh. What the, and so, I wrote all about the rape of Nanking as well in my book. I covered everything. I didn't pull any punches. Didn't yeah. pull any punches. You, you know, Esther, that's something. I was reading uh, something about that just the other day. I, I was reading a book uh, about the uh, trying to explain or explaining. I shouldn't say trying to explaining the Japanese, the the military, the Japanese army's uh, attitude toward prisoners. And it was, you know, the the warrior spirit and all that, death before dishonor, that that type of thing. And anybody who surrendered uh, or was taken alive was looked down on as, as kind of a less than human, uh, less than human person. So I can see where you were you were not that it was pleasant, but at least you had, like you say, the uh, Japanese that you had to deal with were, were a little more upper crust, had families of their own, and were a little bit empathetic to what you folks were going through uh, yeah. so they weren't quite quite as bad at least as um, and the other question I, I wanted to ask you is what about schooling did, did uh, it, now you were five years old uh, you know did, did, did you get homeschooled if that's the appropriate word no, no. Or, uh, remember that we were interned with all the allies which included all the teachers and the doctors and the Every British person was in turn. So there were about eight or nine camps in Shanghai. Um, we had teachers in our uh, camps, so they set up schools. 
and we just had to do with whichever books we could um, people had brought into the camp with them. And uh, later, after the war, we were tested for ability to see which classes we had to go into. And I was very lucky, so I skipped two classes during my schooling. Um, yeah. Does that answer it? It does. Uh, you know, like uh, Morgan said earlier, just, just you know, it's fascinating. Uh, and I do want to tell you, I'm going to order your book tonight. So, uh, oh, I'm so lucky. <laughs> Follow up I'd on love it. feedback from you. I would love to discuss it further later with you again, because oh, I, that, I would. That. I would. Well, love you know, that. we actually have a little time left. Um, we're right. not. We've got about sixteen minutes left. So let me do this. Let's give our contact information and information about the next show, sure. and then we'll just keep going until we run out of time. Okay. okay, and I'd love to just add something here. That that because I'm a musician and my first jazz lessons were from watching the wonderful musical GIs who liberated us. I've I've had a soft spot my whole life for the United States and it was just amazing. Yeah, I think I think the liberators were um cheered in many places. I know I was uh at just happened to happen into um, a celebration of the World War II veterans returning to Appledorn, um, Holland. And, yes. oh, my God, there, there was so much American patriotism there among yes. the Dutch in Appledorn. It yes. was just an amazing Absolutely. thing to be able to see. Absolutely. And even when the camp closed, it, when it, the last day, when we knew that the war was really over but we couldn't leave yet, they brought out all the flags and they sang the British um, anthem and the American, uh, and God bless America. Boy, I've got chills. <laughs> Just listening to this, I have chills. I know. People told me they cried when they read that chapter. Yeah. It brings back yeah. lots of memories for many people. Right. Yeah, well, let, let me slide this in. Um, our next show yeah. is going to be on February 24th at the same time, and it's still topic to be decided, and if we're going to have a guest. And um, please visit my own website, www.morgansaintjames, that's M-O-R-G-A-N-S-T-J-A-M-E-S-author.com, uh, for more information about me and my books. And remember, you can listen to any of our archived shows. All you have to do is visit HTTP, and then the colon and double backslash, writerstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstrickstr
And mm. I was never in combat. I was in the Navy. I, I wasn't in Vietnam, and nobody shot at me. However, mm. during that time, if you want, when you went home on leave or something, uh, in order to get uh, reduced airline tickets and so forth, you had to travel in uniform. And here I was in my own country, and, I mean, the the people who were protesting the Vietnam War, when they saw someone in uniform, they didn't know whether you came from assignment in Vietnam or off the coast of Vietnam or mm. whether you were like me. I was stationed in Hawaii, and it was great duty. But, uh, Boy, tough yeah. duty, Denny. <laughs> yeah, really, really was yeah. off the coast. <laughs> but the people would spit at you. You know, I mean, American citizens... Uh, and it, it was just so different uh, that yeah. that conflict or that war compared to uh, you know World War One, World War Two, and Korea. Uh, it, it was really uh, an entirely different time and entirely different reaction, at least by the people of the United States. Yeah, well, the the um, the um, veterans from World War One and World War Two were really viewed as heroes by the American population. And it's so sad that uh, young men who sacrificed their lives and many wound up with PTSD, a lot didn't want to be in Vietnam, but they didn't get that respect. I, I've known many Nam vets who have just just went through terrible things. And terrible. I'll just throw this in there. Um, recently, I lost a gentleman who's a cousin by marriage he was 90 years old and he was a pow during world war ii and oh some of the stories he had to tell it was almost like stalag 17 he said the only Mm. thing that saved him was that when he was in high school he had taken german so he could speak german and they made him kind of a pet in a way because he could translate Mm. yeah wow so, he was an asset. He was an asset. Yes, he was. Yeah. And he was I mean, an yeah. He he was very thin, you know, when he when the war was over, when he came out and stuff. But he always maintained a jolly sense of humor, and I think he felt very lucky that he survived what a lot of his um, buddies didn't. Yeah. So I we know. still have Esther. We're going to mine your brain. We still have ten minutes yeah. left. And um, I'm curious about something. Um, Do you think that this story can help as an example of survival? Have have you communicated? You know, there are so many kids, particularly in our age now, where so I mean, there are a lot of kids who suffer terribly, but there are also a lot of kids who have the entitlement mentality. And yeah. Have you used your book to show the kids that are really having a hard time of it that, yes, they can get beyond this. It's not easy, but they can do it. Well, I've spoken to lots of kids at schools in um, in different, not here actually, but in Canada and in South Africa and even in Israel I spoke to kids. And the thing is that they, they love it because you tell them that you can survive anything and don't give up and just keep plodding on and learn as much as you can. I spoke to a lot of African kids in South Africa and told them 
not to behave badly, but to take the opportunity to learn what they could because the country would belong to them one day and they could have a very important role helping everyone. And, I mean, the African kids suffered immensely in South Africa. It was horrible what went, they went through, really horrible. But yeah. I've seen this in everywhere, you know, and kids are too privileged and too entitled, really, in many places. And they don't have anything to build on later. They, they need strength. They need to gain strength from seeing adversity when they're kids. Otherwise, they never do. Yeah, that's really a sad thing. They feel like they're defeated before they start. And it's just finding that inner strength. I mean, you find that with a lot of abuse victims, too. I've done books where I've assisted abuse victims in doing their memoirs. And, in fact, I'm working on two right now. But um, it's that same mentality, you know, that unless they develop that inner strength and say, I'm not going to be the victim, I'm going to be the victor, I'm going to get out of this. Uh, they can yeah. go in a very bad direction because they've been so beaten down. Yeah, absolutely right. In fact, people have asked me if I want to, people who work in the prisons, if I'd like to go with them to talk to prisoners to show them that there is survival and, you know, to have strength and courage and just carry on learning and so on. Um, and I'm not against it. I will do it. Absolutely. But I like dealing with kids. I would love to go to schools more and speak to them. I do a lot of public speaking. Yeah, I know you do. You're all over the place. In fact, I feel lucky to have you on our show. No, I think you are wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I'll pay you later. (laughs) (laughs) You know, speaking of pay, how did your family cope financially? I mean, you you had everything taken from you. What did you live on? What did you eat? What did you horrible. wear? It was horrible. Um, well, the the, the British uh, Residents Association kind of helped us out as much as possible after the war. My father went to sell radios, and my mother taught English, and um, we we wore hand-me-down clothes. Everything was from other people and cut down pants, long pants became short pants and everything was recycled to absolute death. And we got furniture and bits and pieces of things from when we came out and we had nothing in our apartment. Um, People gave us furniture and some kitchen utensils and somehow it came from here and there and everywhere, you know, when you least expected it. But, you know, we couldn't, we wanted to immigrate to the United States. We wanted to go to Canada. And they wouldn't take us because we didn't have $10,000. Australia said the quota was full. And it was very tough. It was tough. So we stayed uh, three more years in Shanghai. And just before the communists uh, took over, we went to Hong Kong. And, of course, that's the other story where my father lost everything again. And so my mother said, we're going to Israel. She was a big Zionist. We're going. Hmm. <laughs> and so we Well, you certainly and... had a colorful life. I mean, some yeah. of it good, some of it not so good. But the net result is that you're an extremely interesting person. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I mean, do I recommend it to go through all that? I can't say that I do. Maybe half of it. 
But, I mean, here I am. You've seen me. I've survived. I'm fine. <laughs> right, yeah. right. But you know what? It doesn't prepare you when you're a third culture kid. Your your own children and everyone else who have never been through anything like this, it's hard for them to understand it. And you don't really want them to too much because it's painful. Right. You know? Right. Well, you know, when I started, Denny and I started out co-authoring a book for um, a woman named Bella Capo called La Bella Mafia, and she was yes. a survivor of abuse and so forth. I, in fact, I think you met Bella, Esther, when she um, did a presentation. I'm not sure. But, um, uh-huh. you know, I grew up in a very sheltered family, and it, it was shocking to me to actually be dealing with somebody whose parents were so horrendous to her and you know not I shouldn't say parents her mother was wonderful it was her father and um you know then I've moved on Denny and I wrote another book together or we actually acted as consultants on a book about mm-hmm. a, a woman who grew up with extreme abuse and a celebrity father and mm-hmm. now I've worked on one where a uh, I'm just finishing up the um, read-through of the manuscript where she actually hired a classmate to kill her father when she was 16 years old because he'd been abusing her physically, mentally, and sexually from the time she was 11, and he was threatening to go after her sister. And, Uh. and, I mean, it's just incredible. And, And the book I've just started on, um, her father was a serial killer, and she's writing about how it affected children, and kind of the same thing, that she had to come to a point where she said, where is my inner strength? I need to get past this, and I need to use my experiences to help others who are going through this. Yeah, really, it's true. The worst is when oh, your own parents... Uh-oh, my associate producer is putting his two cents in. <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> yes, Mr. Dillon is the associate producer, so we'll have to let him out because I think it's time for his dinner. <laughs> uh, Esther, before we run out of time, can I ask you another question? Yes, Sure. Uh, you mentioned a little bit ago uh, about the rape of Nan King. And yes. uh, I, I was telling you, I was reading a book, uh, you know, about the uh, the attitude of the Japanese soldiers. And it was absolutely, and I, I don't think that's as well known, that incident, uh, that time period, as it should be. What was yeah. done uh, is it, it, just sickening. Uh, and it's hard to comprehend. It's hard for a civilized person to believe what happened yeah. to those people. And, and I know the, the the book I read that said that uh, they used to use the Chinese people for bayonet practice. They, they'd tie them to a, to a pole. They did. And, yeah, the soldiers would then come in and, and bayonet them to death. And then, of course, the instructors would be watching and say, uh, you know, you really should have uh, stuck the bayonet up a little higher, a little lower. Yeah. And if the person yeah. wasn't dead, if they didn't kill him the first time, they'd leave him up there until they, you know, they they might survive two or three attacks before they yeah. finally died. And yeah. the raping and and the, it, it's just it, unbelievable. If somebody, yeah. And, it, the, it's hard and the girl who wrote uh, the, the girl who wrote the rape of Nanking was terrified. She eventually committed suicide. 
um, the, the original book because uh-huh. she, she felt that uh, they were after her. And you know what? The Japanese don't. It's out of their school books and everything. They say that the Chinese dressed up as Japanese and posed as Japanese, and uh, and it was a setup. Oh. Hmm. It's really They've never admitted anything ever. Look at the Comfort Women. I mean, that in itself is a horrible story. Yes. They ruined so many lives. Were unbelievable. There's a lot of horror really stories is. over there. And certainly well, the Holocaust got a lot of attention, and deservedly so. But what happened over in the Pacific is uh, is is bad in its own right as well. And you know what? It was kept a secret for so long. It mm-hmm. never got out. The story never got out in full. And few people have read it, considering, oh. you know, it, it needed a place in history. It had to. I'm often a, a guest of Professor Hong at UCLA, and uh, we discuss all this the whole time because they have a lot of events. And so I'm like, a Ch- I'm, I'm almost more Chinese, as he says, than the Chinese who are born here, you know. Mm-hmm. And they, they, are, they are very upset with the Japanese because of what's happened, that they sure. won't admit anything. It's shocking. It's uh, uh, very, very horrible. It looks like we're out of time. Uh, yeah, we are. Esther. We're still recording, uh, though, so the whatever we say right now will be on the archived um, copy, but we probably oh, should be right. saying good night. And I want um, to thank Esther for visiting with us. I'll tell you, it's been a very enjoyable and enlightening uh, 45 minutes. Oh, good. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I enjoyed it too. I loved it. Thank you so much for having me on this uh, your show. Really, I love it. Thank you. Yeah, well, we'll have to have you back again sometime. I mean, when when you've got the hosts totally enthralled, I'm sure that anybody listening <laughs> is experiencing the same thing. Well, I hope maybe, so. I hope so. Yeah. Maybe after I have a chance to read Esther's book, we can have her back, and then I can. Oh, ask, that, that uh, would sure you know that would be, I think, a great show where we have Esther choose a reading from her book, yeah. and then maybe discuss it. You know, discuss Absolutely. some of the things, and and also discuss it with an eye to how this would help writers develop what they're right. doing, yes. and and make yes, it yes. you know interesting and tightly written and um, things that are really compelling. I think that would be a really yes. good show, Danny. Good suggestion. I think it's very interesting that people who read my book have book clubs take my book. Quite a few have taken it. And they afterwards I go to dinner with them and then they have more questions than they uh, have sure. Because Absolutely. once you read it, it opens up all the thinking processes. And you want to know more, and there are lots of wonderful books as well that, that cover the you know aspects in greater detail. But I've covered yes. everything. I've covered a lot in my book, a lot. And they have wonderful photographs as well. So, like, uh, uh, recently, I also write theater reviews. So recently, one of the publishers bought my book, and she was so excited, she contacted me and said, oh, that place where your parents had their wedding... I, I stayed at that Astor House Hotel in Shanghai, and I remember that room, the peacock room. So, you know, it's, it's fantastic, really. And more and more people go to Shanghai now, so 
that that makes it um, more interesting indeed. It really does. It's a pity they don't find out more about Shanghai before they go. Because later it's like, I should have known this or I, I would have <laughs> investigated it further, you know. Yeah. 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 Wow. But well, I guess we're going to have to say goodnight with mega thanks to you, Esther, for a very, very interesting show. And to our listeners, we'll be back again on the 24th, so watch for the posts on social media. Thank you, and thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Good night, ladies. Good night. Good night.